Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of NAIS Member Voices, a brand new NAIS podcast focusing on you, the hardworking individuals that make up the independent school community. Each show will be speaking to a different staff member at an NAIS member school about their role, their challenges, successes, where they find inspiration, and more. I'm Scott Donaldson, NAIS Member Engagement Coordinator, and today I'll be speaking with Alex Prasowski, Head of School at the Quaker School at Horsham in Horsham, Pennsylvania. Alex, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Member Voices. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's my pleasure. So I want to start off here, uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about the Quaker School at Horsham, the history of the school, as much as you want to share, and, uh, and what uh, the school looks like now as far as the student population uh, and uh, your administrative structure. Sure. Uh, well, the Quaker School at Horsham started in 1982 in the basement of a Quaker meeting house. Uh, it was... Uh, three kids, and it was actually founded by a gentleman named George Rowe, who at the time was the head of uh, Buckingham Friends School, and he had a student named Paul, and he had to counsel Paul out because Paul wasn't successful there, and it really broke his heart. And hmm. he said, you know, I know Paul can learn and just not here, um, and wouldn't it be great if there was a school that was really devoted to meeting the needs of kids like Paul, and he found a special ed teacher named Beverly Morgan, and then with, again, three kids in the basement, they, they started this school. Um, over the, you know, the last 34 years, uh, it's grown to be a school of 75 students. Uh, nine years ago, we built the, uh, well, we, I wasn't here yet, the, the school built the building that it's in. Uh, now it's on, you know, five acres. We share the land with the, the meeting house where the school started. And, you know, the school was originally founded as a school for kids with language-based learning disabilities, particularly uh, dyslexia. But it was founded with the purpose of being a school for kids like Paul who weren't successful in the environments they were in. And I think what the kids are dealing with that can't be successful in more mainstream schools has changed. And it's not so much language-based learning disabilities anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that, you know, the Quaker School faced, and it saw uh, declining enrollment, some change in population. Um, so what I did uh, with the board pretty shortly after arriving is we looked at the pool of students that we have here, and I said, you know, we call it a pool because if you look at it long enough, you'll, you'll see your reflection. <laughs> and we said, you know, who's here and who needs a specialized school? You know, I think this, most independent schools at this point are doing really good work with, with high-quality learning specialists to serve kids with, you know, language-based learning disabilities like dyslexia. So where is the need for a specialized school? And we remissioned as a school for, for complex challenges. Uh, and what that means is, you notice these numbers are going to go way over 100%. So you, you sort of do the math. Our kids have uh, what we call comorbid, you know, in, in the same body. They have a mix of disabilities. So about half our kids are diagnosed with autism, 70% uh, with severe ADHD, um, uh, some severe receptive and expressive language disorders, uh, anxiety disorders, epilepsy, brain tumors, um, and... Uh, that's our mission. It's to help kids with complex challenges blossom socially, behaviorally, and academically, uh, and in that order. And, and that was interesting. You know, that came out of conversations with really our parents and what their priorities were 
And prior to coming here, you know, I was a learning specialist at, at, at uh, Spence. So I came here and I keep hearing that social, behavioral, and academic. And I'm thinking, academic third? But this is a school. How could that possibly be? <laughs> uh, and yet, it was true. Um, and it really is what people prioritized. And now, you know, it's our work as a school to continually examine what does that mean in terms of curriculum, in terms of programming, in terms of staffing when our priority chain, well, like our students, is, is atypical. I think that's fascinating. And how long have you been at Horsham uh, total? When did you start working there as a head of school? Um, I came in here in, uh, I've only been here a year and a half. So, you know, I started in July of 2015, is it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So still pretty new. At, at what point did you decide that you needed to um, speak with the students and, and sort of readjust your mission? Well, it happened pretty quickly. Um, you know, what I found when I arrived was um, this is a school with capacity for 75 kids, and we were at 48. Um, we Attrition was hovering uh, in the worst years at 50%, in most years between 30 and 40%. Uh, and it was facing a structural budget deficits. So um, I really came into an organization uh, in extremis uh, and that um, wasn't sustainable. Uh, so I um, had to really dig in with the board and our parents uh, and the faculty here and, and see you know, what we needed to do. You know, and then that, that really came out of that process of reflection came you know, this mission, which is really uh, resonated. So, you know, we're, we're fully enrolled at this point. I, and unless I could start putting kids on the roof, we are just flat out <laughs> in space. Um, attrition went down from, like I said, 50% at its worst to eight and a half percent. We've simultaneously raised tuition and lowered financial aid. So, you know, it, we found a, a purpose that that's really resonant with, you know, 21st century needs. I think that's fascinating and really impressive, too. I mean, it certainly does a credit to you uh, not having been at the school that long and already having made such strides. And I'm sure that, you know, you're continuing to make strides and evaluate what steps you can take next. Uh, what sort of uh, administrative team uh, do you have around you? Obviously, it's a, it's a small school. I know you mentioned that. So is it a small uh, staff as well? Yes. You know, so our total budget's about two point. $4 million. So we're okay. very administratively lean. So I was even leaner uh, when I found it. And uh, what, I, what I did was I created a new position, again, working with, with the board to, to you know, find uh, the way to create this. And I created a, a, an administrative structure that I really wanted a horizontal structure. So um, we have a created three assistant head positions. So I have an assistant head for, for finance, and uh, that's just an incredibly important relationship. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, we, what had happened, the only other full-time administrator when I came in was the admissions director. And what was happening is the admissions director, because what that structure left was the head, a cliff, and then the faculty. Um, so the admissions director was getting pulled into a lot of retention issues. A uh, very uh, savvy woman would say, hey, you know, if I can fix this problem and keep this kid, that's, that's you know, one less we have to bring in. And she would get pulled out of her lane a lot. So um, what it did is we 
I took the administration and I, uh, well, that position, they said, we're going to have one person who's going to be pointed entirely outward. And we create, created an assistant head for this incredibly long title. I wish we could have been better at naming things, but uh, <laughs> the uh, assistant head for enrollment management and institutional advancement. Thankfully, I just get to call her Lori. I like it. <laughs> um, but she uh, is pointed entirely outward. So, you know, it's bringing students in and then, you know, after they graduate, transferring those relationships uh, with, with the parents and with alumni towards development and advancement, communications, and all outward facing work. Um, I partner with her on that. And then we cr I created an assistant head for student affairs who was pointed entirely inward. And that's taking, you know, a first pass at at student issues, parent communication, uh, we're, you know, really working on faculty development and uh, fidelity of implementation of curriculum. And, and so far, that's new this year, but it's been uh, wonderful uh, for me anyhow. So uh, obviously you've done a lot in a short amount of time as we've discussed. Where, so how, uh, how long were you at Spence before you got the job at Horsham? I was at Spence for four years. I seem to stay everywhere for about four years. Okay. <laughs> um, you I, got a uh, pattern. Yeah. Um, and, and those were, I was a, a department chair there. And uh, it was a, a wonderful, I consider those four years to be the best professional development experience of my life. Um, oh, no kidding. And I got to, you know, learn from some wonderful independent school leaders and uh, teachers and um, just a, you know, a real formative experience that I've brought to my position here. Okay, and, and what drew you to the, the position that you're in now? How did you hear about it and, and what made you think, you know, this is, this is the right fit for me? I was in a nationwide search for headships as I was ready for, for me, it's always been about impact. So, you know, when I was a teacher, I could impact the kids in my room and my advisees and the kids I was coaching and, and, and that was great. Um, but then I, you know, I wanted to do more good. And then being a department chair, I could influence the school curriculum wise, but, you know, that had some limits as well. Um, and I saw as a head of school, I could really have the greatest impact. You know, I could impact an entire institution and every kid in it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did a nationwide search for kids. And actually, it was a, a former head that I used to work for, um, a guy named Peter Bailey, who's now the executive director of Ames. Uh, he told me about this position here and said, oh, I, I think you'd be, you know, really interesting. He'd actually been the interim head here something like 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and uh, he referred me to the consultant who was handling the search. And then uh, um, it was sort of my first choice from when I, when I met everybody here. I, I say I started my school, my career at a tiny little school in Bayside, Queens called the Lowell School. And it was a school for kids with disabilities. And... It was in the basement of a temple. It used to fill up with water when it rained and we would get electrocuted when we plugged everything in. And it was a really great place to work, oddly enough. <laughs> um, and uh, I saw something of a coming home, if you will. I said, wow, it'd be great to return to an environment like that. That's amazing. I, I feel like I hear so many of these stories, even in my short amount of time at NEIS, about these schools that, that started in basements and had these issues and, and really just uh, you know, grew out of these people with passion who love what they're doing and had a vision and felt a calling and, and then look at you now. And I've heard that again and again and again. So that's, that's really cool to hear yet another great story of um, how not only you've succeeded, but uh, the schools that you've been a part of have as well. 
Yes, yeah, it's it's really been a um, a great career for me so far. That's great, and and I wanted to ask you as well. So obviously, you've only been uh, in the role um, for I think you said about a little more than a year since 2015. So has the role changed at all in any you know noticeable ways since uh, you started? Was yeah, it still too no, early to tell? No, no, it certainly has. I think it, it changes all the time. Um, I think last year when I took over as head, the school had some real challenges, you know, as I outlined earlier, and attrition, enrollment. Um, so while last year was about really driving badly needed changes, it was reorganizing, building a team, rebuilding a culture, examining mission, you know, in the meanwhile, trying to get to know the school and all its constituents. Uh, and I think this year is about consolidating those changes. I keep saying no more changes. Let's just, let's really consolidate and make these permanent. Uh, this year is about communicating my work. It's about looking at how to make the school sustainable and looking at the future. You know, the present is, is stable. So I've really seen that my role shift um, a lot, even in that, that 18 month time. Hmm. I imagine there may be folks listening that uh, are new heads of schools or are new to schools. Um, and, you know, it may be a smaller school like yours or, or one with a very specific mission. Uh, so I'm just curious if you could expand a little bit on how you knew, you know, where to start and how you were able to just, you know, hit the ground running or so it seems and uh, get so much accomplished so quickly. Uh, yeah, well, I think in an ideal world, um, a head should spend their first year essentially on a listening tour, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because of the unique situation here. I, you know, with the board support, I had to be very decisive in terms of identifying where, you know, um, to some degree. I remember we all used to say this a lot in 2008, that you shouldn't waste a great crisis <laughs> um, and that the needs were, I mean, right away we were seriously under-enrolled. We were about 50% under-enrolled. So that had to be the first source. And that was this, you know, and that's really where the difficulties in finances were coming from. So it could only cut so much. Uh, so it was really on, my focus was on, okay, well, what do we need to do to grow enrollment to, you know, to stem attrition and to, um, you know, ensure for the long-term sustainability of the school, in essence, to build a, a 21st century institution. That clarity for me, it was, that was almost easy because it was just this immediate problem that was, uh, had to be taken care of. Right. And you are working at a, a school that has uh, a limit as far as enrollment. And I know that you've done um, a fair amount of work uh, with NEIS on um, that being webinars and uh, workshops and that sort of thing. Uh, on how to to market a school um, with a smaller budget and with uh, minimal personnel and and how to really you know tell your school's story and to get your school's message out there. Could you talk a little bit um, about that as well? Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think what what I've learned over this time is that I think schools are are uniquely positioned to. Well, if I can back up, like if, if I look at it, this year's NAS trend book, and I, I can't um, defer enough to say enough about you know NAS resources. When I look at the trend book, you know, there was a statement in there that millennial parents, I think the number was something crazy, like over eighty percent of them 
wanted to be better parents, right? Mm -hmm. So we're in such a position as schools to help them to position ourselves. And, you know, and this becomes a really, you know, no cost. How do we position ourselves as thought leaders that these folks are turning to, to, to learn how to do that and to build relationships and habits and systems of communication where people are, you know, where the school becomes a, a resource. And, you know, a lot of this is accomplished, you know, I'm accomplishing through email and blogs and the web and the costs, it's time consuming, uh, but the costs are, are really minimal. And uh, I think just the future there looks really bright. If schools can communicate what we know about children and how children learn and how children develop, you know, all the things that schools are great at, at your independent schools are, are great at doing and that parents care about. So um, we just have to connect with them. And uh, I think everything flows from there. Yeah, I think that's uh, really fascinating and uh important discussion to have. And uh, I want to shift gears a little bit here now and, and talk about uh, your student population. Now, obviously, you have uh, a little bit more of a unique student population than um, potentially some other uh, member schools. But could you talk a little bit about how uh, you've noticed um, students' needs uh, and how they've changed uh, over time, not only uh, during your time at Horsham, but even during your, your time as, at Spence and, and, and as a teacher? Yes, you know, I, um, I honestly think that I really believe this. Kids haven't changed. They're still kids. I think their parents have. And I think the kids are still kids, but the demands have changed significantly. Uh, the demands both that are placed on them and the demands on what a standard of care is for children that is placed on a school. I'm not so sure the kids themselves have changed. Uh, you know... That being said, uh, you know, I have um, a bit of a, a, a soapbox here, if you will. <laughs> but when I used to work with kids with, with learning disabilities, there was a time, um, and as I was sort of beginning my career, and schools were coming out of this, and this was more, uh, I think, a public school than an independent school problem, but the, there was this whole group of kids because of the uh, whole language movement in uh, how you teach reading. Because reading wasn't taught correctly. You know, we didn't understand balanced literacy yet or really how to teach. So there was this whole group of kids who really hadn't been taught fundamentally how to read and their reading skills were really lousy and then schools had to deal with that. And what I'm seeing is, and I think this is a place where independent schools can really stake out their value. And, and of course, each school's unique and, and really um, excel is I think in this world where this political climate or whatever it is, where there's this emphasis in pre-K, academic pre-K, and then kindergarten with a heavy emphasis on getting kids to read in kindergarten and academic skills, that these are places where, especially kindergarten, where the instruction used to be on social skills mm -hmm. and socialization and sharing. I remember my report cards, one of the things was like works and plays well with others. And I don't think that's on or, you know, I, I hope it's on more report cards. But what I'm seeing is because time is being taken away from these really important skills, 
there are need for schools like mine. I don't know that we would see as many kids with social learning disabilities if we were spending as much time as we used to teaching socialization. I think to some degree, uh, schools themselves are causing these problems uh, in the kids. And I think it's a place where independent schools could certainly differentiate themselves from, from public schools and just um, in their focus on, on the whole child and, and all of these non-cognitive skills, um, especially as it appears, you know, at least in the public school realm, this isn't gonna get any better. Would you say that's the, the biggest challenge or one of the primary challenges right now that you see uh, at Horsham or even in the, you know, as you mentioned, maybe even in the independent school community as a whole? Yeah, would I, do I see that as the biggest challenge? I would say I see that as the biggest opportunity. Oh, great. Um, in terms of the biggest challenge, um, and I think um, this is probably true for many small schools, and I, I hear this in conversations with other you know, heads of small schools, is identifying what we can really change and where we should focus our limited resources. I, I know that's my greatest challenge. Um, you know, living in an ever-changing world, um, I'm constantly bombarded with facts that while they're unsettling, they're also outside of my hands. So, you know, we're a tuition-driven school. That's not going to change. Um, I'm not going to be able to raise $300 million in endowment to change that, okay? I'm not. Um, small schools are in decline. K-8 through schools are in decline. Friend schools are in decline. Uh, demo demographics are changing. The middle class is eroding. Um, sorry, it's like doomsday. Right. <laughs> Hold in the situations where um, neither I nor TQS can, can actually affect the outcome. I think, you know, concentrating that what I can do is to have an outstanding school with an inestimable value and a resonant purpose, and I can ensure that this school's mission fits the needs of the 21st century, and we're delivering on that mission every day, and staying focused on that, I think, is the biggest challenge. Right. No, I, I, uh, I agree, and I think that, um, you know, like you said, Sometimes it can seems like, seem like doomsday. Sometimes it can seem like there's a lot of obstacles and a lot of challenges that uh, our member schools and schools in the independent school community have to face. So uh, I do want to put a, a positive spin on it, and you certainly seem like a, a positive guy. So is, is there some place or some places that you turn to uh, for inspiration uh, when you're trying to overcome these obstacles or struggles? Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, I reflect back that, you know, I've really been lucky to work with wonderful independent school uh, leaders throughout my, my career. Um, so, um, and, you know, so I think about the people that I've had to work with, like um, Peter Bailey and Dick Barter and, and um, Doug Brophy and uh, Bodie Brizendine at Spence and how much these folks inspired me. And I ask myself often, you know, what would they do in my situation? Um, and uh, I really turn to just the amazing people that are in uh, independent schools and uh, the great work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. I definitely believe that that community aspect is, is something that our members see a great, a great benefit of just having the conversation and, and just, you're right, the, the passionate people that, that work in independent schools and that, that passion, you know, does uh, really show at our conferences and, and even just in meeting folks one-on-one. -on -one. So um, I completely agree. Is there a, a, a particular moment uh, in your uh, professional career, either again your time at Horsham or or prior to that, uh, where you've had a 
um, a real win, uh, something that, that you might even call your proudest moment? Yes, you know, it's interesting. Um, I have an ego like anybody else, right? So, um, <laughs> so going in, you know, starting a headship, I thought there would be these, uh, I had a real grandiose idea of what I was going to do, but um, also, you know, about that I would have the, you know, that I think it'd be these big moments. And I think really it's the, the little moments, you know, I think about just this past Friday, we have a tradition here that's been since the school's founding, we're in January and February on Fridays, we break down class in the morning and we all go ice skating. Um, and hmm. a parent, um, woman's name is Alyssa, she skated up to me, um, and she wasn't the only one. There, I had a number of these conversations, and, um, and you know, and she just skated up, and she just had to tell me, her, her son actually started in January, and he hadn't been here that long, and she was telling me just how much it meant to him that he was here, and how it had changed her whole family life, and how happy she was that he was at the school, and all we were doing for him, and uh, and it just felt wonderful. And it's really the moments like that when I, I see the, um, how much good we're doing for kids here. I think that's great. I, I love the idea of going ice skating. I think that that's a lot of fun. So very cool. It is a lot of fun. You know, I was talking with the founder, George, at the last ice skating. I, said, I thanked him for, for, I said, thanks for starting this, you know, in 1982. Because they said, nobody would start something this stupid. Uh, <laughs> We know too much about liability and concussions and everything else. But, right. Um, but since it's a tradition, we do it, and, and it's wonderful. That's amazing. Very, very cool. Um, I wanted to shift gears again um, and just touch on on something else. You, you did a webinar for NEIS, uh, gosh, I believe it was last year now, in 2016, uh, on executive function. Um, and uh, I think that we might have touched on that a little bit um, earlier on, but I, I wondered if you just wanted to talk a little bit more uh, about uh, teaching that and, and um, any tips or thoughts that you might have on that subject. Um, yes, so, you know, it's um, more and more, and I think this goes back to something I, I had said earlier on, I think we're learning more and more that what makes kids successful is non-cognitive skills. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I was at a conference recently and I, I can't remember which one it was, but I remember it's all secondhand, but somebody had, you know, something to do with college admissions and all these highly competitive schools said, you know, they're, they're really re-examining whether they want to have what they called the fragile elite. Um, and what they really wanted was kids were, you know, resilient and, uh, independent and, and organized. And I think it's all those non-cognitive skills that, that independent schools really build in their kids and that um, differentiate us. Uh, and I think more and more it's not, you know, in being in the 21st century, it's not what kids are learning, but how they're learning and how they can, you know, navigate the sort of complex mazes of this ever-changing world we're in. Um, and I, all of that comes from these... Um, you know, executive functioning skills, you know, how do you connect with what you're learning to what you, you know, you already know? Um, how do you categorize? How do you control your impulses um, and, and harness them? I think this is really where we can um, help uh, kids turn into successful um, lifelong learners. Right. I love that. Makes sense. And I, I have to put in another plug. So that webinar that you did uh, is on the website uh, at NAIS.org on our webinars page from last year. And it really was a great one. Um, so uh, so check that out uh, if uh, you have time. Uh, and I wanted to end on 
uh, a lighter question. Uh, this is honestly a question that I stole from uh, Zoe Sherlock, who's our Senior Vice President uh, of Membership and Community Engagement. Uh, but I think that it's a good one because it tells a lot about a person. Uh, so Alex, if you had one more hour in your day, what would you do? Uh, I love that question. Um, I'm pretty sure my assistant heard you ask it and has already scheduled another meeting for me to be there. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I, I think maybe this comes at being at a Quaker school for the last 18 months, but if uh, I just take a deep breath, uh, I don't know if I can make that last an hour, but uh, you know. <laughs> you could try. If I had another hour, it'd just sit and reflect. Uh, I think maybe that, I, I, yeah, I'd love to do that. I love that answer, and uh, I, I am with you. That sounds like a good idea. Uh, well, that's uh, actually all the questions that I had for you, Alex. So I, I really appreciate the time, uh, and I just wanted to also thank everyone for listening to this uh, first inaugural episode of NEIS Member Voices. And uh, once again, Alex, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, we've included some uh, resources uh, on uh, some of the areas that Alex uh, touched on, uh, on our website at neis.org. Uh, so be sure to visit the website for new podcast episodes um, that uh, hopefully will be coming up after this one and to find more resources for you and your school. Uh, and also, we always want to hear from our membership. We always want to hear uh, your stories and questions and thoughts, not only about the podcast, but just in general uh, challenges, uh, successes, where you turn to for inspiration. So please um, uh, share them uh, either on Connect on our website or uh, you can email them uh, to membership at neis.org. Uh, so thanks so much again for the time, Alex, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you very much, Scott.